Okay, welcome to the vaccination station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Gretchen Lassell. Gretchen, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for asking me. <laughs> Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, number one, I'm an identical twin. Oh, so. so am I. So am I. That's fantastic. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> I absolutely yeah. am. Yeah. My identical twin was born 10 minutes before me. Uh, mine was 23, which is a long time in identical twin world. Man, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And she's a family doctor too. We don't live, we, we live across the country from each other, but um, we went to medical school together, which was pretty fun. So that's great. Yeah. Uh, what else? I, um, I have a terrible memory. <laughs> That's another thing. Um, two children, more than my fair share of concussions later, I have a hard time rubbing two brain cells together sometimes. <laughs> so I'm a constant keeper of to-do lists and have sticky notes everywhere. Uh, and then the third thing I guess is I, I, you know, dabble in writing other than medical writing. I dabble in poetry also. So that's that's my third little interesting factoid about me. Oh, that's that's pretty special. That's really great. Thank you. Can you tell me where you studied and what your qualifications are, and what field you chose to specialize in? Sure. Um, so I'm a family doctor, um, which means that I take care of people from birth uh, to the end of life and all uh, ages and stages in between. I don't deliver babies anymore, though I was trained to do that. Um, and I went to medical school uh, in New Orleans at Tulane University School of Medicine, uh, which is a great place to train. Um, and uh, then did my residency training in family medicine at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. And then made my way uh, up here, I'm in Spokane, Washington now. I met my husband in medical school. Uh, he's a, a rheumatologist uh, now. And so we did our training together in, in Portland. And then he is from Spokane. So we made our way over to Spokane, Washington, which is on the east side of the state, closer to Idaho. Um, and I've been here for almost 14 years now. Um, and I am a part-time family doc, which allows me to pursue these other passions of mine. My my unpaid second job, I call it, <laughs> the, the vaccine advocacy and, and um, you know, doing sort of these sorts of podcasts and, and public speaking engagements. And, um, and I've currently, I've written a book. So I, my, my passion for prevention and, and um, uh, vaccine advocacy and, and working with vaccine hesitant patients led me to write a book, which came out last year. Um, and then this year, I uh, was chosen as one of three uh, American Academy of Family Physician Vaccine Science Fellows. And um, what a year to be learning more about vaccines. <laughs> it's been an incredible journey. So that's, that's kind of how I got to, to where we are, I am today and why I'm with you. 
that is really terrific um, and uh, just fantastic that you you seem to have um, friends and family just steeped in the in the medical field as as well and to be able to to do that alongside them that is just fantastic it's really great what advice would you give to someone considering a career in science bearing in mind that science is obviously a very broad field right <laughs> a huge field right it's such a broad field i mean it's 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 an amazing field it's so important we're seeing the importance of that play out um in our daily lives right now um there's so many ways that science impacts our world. Um, medicine is my particular passion, but you know, social sciences, bench science, of course, vaccine development. I have amazing respect for people who can do that bench science. For me, I had to, you know, I, I knew I loved biology. I majored in biology. I knew I, I loved science, and but I wasn't sure in college what type of science. So I always recommend, and this is what I did, trying out little bits of things. You know, I. I um, did a summer summer uh, had a summer job at the University of Chicago where I did more of that bench science and figured out that that while I found it incredibly fascinating was not for me. I wanted to be with people and not in a laboratory. Um, and and I did some you know volunteering at various places, uh, children's hospital and various other more clinical um, settings to really narrow in on on medicine. Um, and then when I got into medical school, I just loved everything. It was really hard for me to pick. I like procedures. I like not knowing what's behind the door, being surprised, um, you know, having to think really critically. Um, I end up doing these days a lot of internal medicine. Family medicine here in the, in the U.S. Um, has taken over in part probably for our internal medicine specialists who now do a lot of subspecialty medicine and hospitalist work, so less outpatient general internal medicine and family medicine has absorbed a lot of those patients. So there's a lot of complexity, a lot of interesting stuff, fabulous patients. Um, I'm never bored. Uh, and so, you know, just trying things out, I think is, is what you need to do before you commit because it is a commitment. <laughs> it's a long road. You got to be doing something in those years, but you're committing some years, uh, you know, if you commit to medicine. So how did you get into science communication from medicine? It was really a journey born out of frustration, <laughs> primarily. Um, this probably started for me, um, oh gosh, five or more years ago. And it was, it was during flu season, um, which, you know, here is it, you know, September, October through April, May. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm very big in, into preventive medicine. I want to keep my patients healthy um, and not have them have to deal with disease, you know, on the other end. And, so I, 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 I'm always offering mammograms and colonoscopies and vaccines, of course, because vaccines are the one, of one of the most successful preventive measures we've ever had in, in medicine. And, um, and I was meeting a lot of resistance and I wasn't sure if it was sort of the time that I'm living in now, because when I was in training, this wasn't, it didn't feel like as prevalent an issue, but certainly vaccine hesitancy has grown uh, in large part with media, social media, uh, it, it has proliferated um, amazingly quickly. <laughs> um, but also maybe the part of the country that I live in here in the, in the Pacific and inland Northwest of the United States, it's, there's a fair uh, number of um, folks who have uh, sort of that vaccine hesitant bent um, uh, and maybe a little bit more sort of independent minded, 
pioneering frontier, you know, stay out of my business <laughs> kind of people, <laughs> uh, which is great. <laughs> but also I was getting a lot of pushback on my vaccine offerings. But so I, I came to understand really that vaccine hesitancy, um, you know, is, is really born out of fear, partly. Um, fear of the unknown, fear of, especially with parents not wanting to do anything that would harm our children, potentially. Um, becoming a parent is an anxiety-provoking uh, endeavor. <laughs> From the moment you find out you're pregnant or about to have a child and it, forevermore, uh, anxiety reigns, I think. And also just coming to the understanding that really, no matter how frustrating it is for us as clinicians who are offering these measures, which we know to be the best thing for our patients, how frustrating it is to hear no. People are just coming to this, uh, you know, with the best of intentions. They're really trying to make the best decisions that they can, the information that they have, and maybe they're working with, you know, not the best information. And so I wanted, you know, I felt like it's my responsibility to share what I know with them, to give them accurate information, to make these really important decisions on. Um, and then I kind of got you know, I wasn't, I wasn't content to just have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with my patients. I felt like I was constantly fighting against a machine um, that had 24-7 access to my patients, which is social media and, and news media. And, um, and so I felt like I needed to have and wanted to have a broader voice. And that's how I got into, um, you know, writing. I have a blog that I, that I keep updated and I'm currently working on a series about COVID vaccines. Um, I, I wrote this book. I um, am doing further training with the fellowship. I'm really working on, one of my primary goals is to, is to um, really impact our medical education because this is something that how to communicate with patients who are hesitant, be it about vaccines or other things, is not really something we're trained in uh, in medical school. We get a lot of the building blocks of vaccine science, you know, immunology and uh, pathophysiology, pharmacology, all the all the building blocks. But you know, when someone comes to you and says, you know, I, I don't want a vaccine because of formaldehyde in the vaccines, or I've heard there's aborted fetal tissue in vaccines, or you know, we're not trained to address those things. And so I wanted to share that all that research that I'd done to educate myself with everyone else and, and also make life easier for our, our future clinicians by, by working on medical education or resident education uh, to help them have a, a head start in, in fighting against misinformation. That was a long answer. <laughs> No, that's really excellent and very comprehensive. And it leads nicely to my next question. How has social media affected the way you communicate your knowledge and ideas? Because you've, you've said this is something that doctors obviously aren't, aren't trained, naturally trained to do, uh, which I think is, is common for most professions. Most people aren't trained to sort of explain their profession and the details of their profession to a lay audience. So obviously you've you've had to make some adjustments in the way you you communicate not just the the way you do it the language maybe the the vocabulary uh but also the the method and the message uh can you give me some insight into how social media has affected that yeah i mean i i basically go into my my work on social media in the same way that i would if someone was sitting in front of me and i think it's really important that we do that it's easy for people to um, 
sort of give in to their baser instincts in, with social media and, and say things they wouldn't necessarily say to someone sitting in front of them or, um, you know, use language that's not always uh, helpful or effective in, in making behavior change. Um, but we, if we're going to have people trust us and if we're going to um, make forward progress, we have to treat people with respect, whether it's in sitting in front of me in my office or on social media. And um, so I approach it that way. Um, you know, when we go to medical school or if we, you know, our, our uh, schooling is in science training, it's basically like learning a whole nother language. <laughs> we know how to communicate with each other, but how do we communicate some of these really complex concepts with people who don't have that language? And it's, it's not uncommon that I see this in other aspects of medicine, not just vaccine science. You know, I'll have someone who I send to a specialist and the, and the specialist in evaluating them gets a study and, and gives them a note about the study that uses all these big words that they have <laughs> no idea what they mean. You know, uh, an MRI finding, for example. Um, and, and they don't know what it means and they don't know how to translate it. And so that's up to me. And in primary care and family medicine, we're often doing that, sort of translating, what is this specialist saying to you? Um, and, and so that carries over nicely into the vaccine conversations. Social media, as much as I, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, I mean, I think it's done uh, a, a, you know, a great deal of harm <laughs> in spreading a lot of um, bad information out there. Um, but it's also been an amazing resource for me in connecting with people, um, especially right now when we can't really connect in person. You know, I've met so many other vaccine advocates who are really amazing voices for, for what we're trying to do. Paul Offit, Peter Hotez, Dorit Rice, who's a lawyer who does vaccine work. I've met all these people online and, and they've helped me with my book and they, and we, we, you know, bounce ideas off each other. And, and it's been an amazing community um, and, uh, and, and resource for me as well. That's excellent. And I, I like the way that you, you said you will approach it as if you were speaking to someone so in, in, at your surgery, in your office, uh, as a face-to-face -face conversation. I, I really think that's important because one thing a lot of people say these days is they get the feeling that their doctor isn't listening to them. This is one of the reasons why they start to have concerns. They feel that they're not being listened to, that their worries aren't being addressed, that somehow things are being sort of slid under the carpet. And they can't shake the nagging feeling that something's been hidden from them, that, that they would feel more comfortable about if they, if they knew more about, or maybe they, they start to feel increasingly worried because they're thinking, well, there's obviously something they don't want me to know. And that means there's something I should be worried about. I, I just don't know what it is. And that's the kind of mentality that quickly slides towards the anti-vax position. I'm familiar with um, the people that you've mentioned. I've actually interviewed uh, Dorit on my, on my podcast. She is just a, a most amazing figure. She was one of the most impressive people I've ever met in, in my life. Yeah, I've, I've got nothing but, but huge respect for her. Let's talk for a minute about your book. You wrote a book, as you said, last year, and the book is entitled Let's Talk Vaccines. So tell me, well, 
I know you've you've you given me a good idea of why you you wrote it. It's it's part of your vaccine advocacy, but who's the intended audience? Well, initially, I mean, and the the second part of the title of the book is a clinician's guide to addressing vaccine hesitancy and saving lives. So its original intent was to um, offer a resource for clinicians, people that are having these conversations day to day. Um, in doing my research, I mean, there's a wonderful, amazing breadth of, um, of resources out there, but as a busy family doctor, not having time to do, you know, doctors in general, we, we're, we're extremely busy. <laughs> we're trying to take care of patients, and then we're trying to live our lives, and we have families, and, you know, it's, time is of the essence. And so um, there wasn't really a source or resource that I could find where, where all of this information, the history of vaccines, you know, pro and con, um, you know, uh, science communication, the psychology of the anti-vaccine movement, what's in vaccines, you know, all these things was in, I couldn't find it in one place. And so I created it both for myself, I mentioned the whole memory problem that I have, <laughs> so I could have it in one spot as a resource for myself, but also um, to help my fellow clinicians who I knew were struggling similarly with the same issues that I was struggling with. Um, and I've received some really great feedback about that. I think it's, it's been very helpful for folks. Um, but I will say that it is written, I mean, I kind of write the way I talk um, and I talk very plainly and I hope I think easy to understand and so um, it is written in language that is that would not be off-putting to someone who doesn't have uh, you know a medical or scientific background um, very easy to understand uh, even scientists we need things and you know physicians we need things broken down for us because science is so complex <laughs> um, you know how the immune system works for example so complex. I could not explain it all to you, but I have sort of a, a basic, you know, understanding. And I feel like if I can make these things make sense to me, then I can have the language to help them, you know, to help make sense to others. And so that's, I think the book is approachable for both medical and non-medical people. I'm really intrigued that you aimed the book at your fellow colleagues to prime and support them in their discussions with people who have questions about vaccines, whether they're vaccine hesitant or anti-vaxxers or just want to know more. Yours is the first book that I've come across that's actually got the aim of helping and, and informing and supporting medical practitioners. Most books that I've seen are aimed specifically at parents, um, not, not even single piece of people, they specifically target parents, because I know that's, that's where most of the, uh, the fears and doubts arise from, from parents concerned about their children rather than for themselves. And I was really excited when I saw your book because I, I thought this, this was the very first one that I'd seen that aims to provide that, that coaching for medical practitioners. I really think that is something that's well overdue and that I have not seen addressed adequately either um, in my country or from, from what I've known about vaccine advocacy is say in, in the, in Canada, the U S and, and the UK. And I really think that is a, a niche that is crying out for a lot more attention. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I, and I hope that my book will help in that regard. I mean, and it, and it is unfortunately extremely timely. We have, we have the normal vaccine concerns that people have. 
and then throw a pandemic on top of it and a vaccine that's coming, you know, so much more rapidly than we've ever seen before for many good reasons. Um, but it just throws, you know, fuel on the fire of, of people's worries and fears. And um, so how we communicate um, is extremely important. Um, you know, I think we have done and, you know, we'll learn in hindsight, but I think we've done a little bit of a disservice in our country <laughs> by calling this COVID vaccine development operation warp speed. I mean, words really matter. And that that name doesn't engender a lot of confidence in, <laughs> in safety and efficacy. So we're having to sort of play catch up and explaining, yes, it's happening fast, but here's why. And here's these are the good reasons. These are the good things, the efficiencies that are coming out of this process. Um, you know, saying, saying things like we're targeting this vaccine towards people of color or that sort of thing. That word target is a loaded word. And, and we may mean one thing in medicine where, you know, that's a good thing. We're all, we want to cover people of color and make sure that they're well represented and we're targeting certain groups to our, you know, our efforts towards those groups. But in a person, a lay person's mind, target is not a good word. <laughs> And so we really have to be thoughtful about the words that the words that we use. Moving on to vaccination in broader terms, anti-vaxxers can usually find two or three nurses or, or doctors or, or fringe scientists who can support their, their position. And they'll trot out all the regulars. Of course, there's so few of them, really, that the names start to become very familiar very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've produced a series of infographics at, at uh, my Facebook page, The Vaccination Station. I've produced a series of, of infographics entitled False Authorities, where every couple of weeks or so, I go looking for another well-known anti-vax nurse or scientist or, or doctor, and I get as much information as I can about them. Then I put up a nice, easy to understand, uh, fully referenced infographics so that I can whip it out and, and share it with people whenever they ask me, oh, but Dr. So-and-so says, you know, the vaccines cause autism or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of feedback I've had for, uh, at my pages has shown me that this is a very helpful thing for people. Why is it, do you think, that such people exist in the first place? Anti-vaxxers love to say, oh, well, these people are risking their careers by speaking out. You know, the, um, mm -hmm. it's, why would they do this if it was all true or false? Well, the reality, of course, is that none of them are risking their, their careers. People like uh, Joseph McCullough, for example, have a a huge sideline in selling supplements or whatever else. And this is all part of their shtick. And, and they, they usually have some kind of side gig going on or some kind of main gig going on to which Andy Vax is a side gig. Either way, doesn't matter what they say. They've found their niche. They've got a very profitable market. They're not in any way at risk of, of losing their livelihood. That aside, why would, say, a nurse or a doctor start producing anti-vax propaganda? What would turn them to that? Being that they are the people that we trust to be educated and fully trained in matters of science and medicine. Oh gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, right in theory, they've, they've had the same training that all the rest of us have and, and why are, you know, 90 whatever percent <laughs> of the scientific and medical community convinced that vaccines are safe and effective and this small percentage are not. Um, there's definitely the group that are, are trying to profit from 
you know, in some way from uh, their message, um, for sure. There's that group. Um, I, I think, you know, medical people probably are, and scientific folks are more insulated from um, conspiratorial thinking, but, it, you know, uh, we are not uh, immune to it, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, and then I don't know. I mean, I, I have to think, I, I always hope for the best in people <laughs> and I, I try to see the positive. Um, and I have to think there's this, a group of people out there who have, you know, seen what we know to be in science, the very real, but very rare potential side effects of immunization. And, you know, I think if you see that and it impacts your life, um, autism is not one of them, by the way, but <laughs> if it impacts your life or your, the life of a loved one, um, it can be hard to overcome that. Um, and they may start to think, you know, it's easy to think that what happens to me will happen to others, even though that's not usually the case. Uh, everybody's experiences are different, but, um, you know, they can start, I, I imagine they can start to feel like they need to protect others and that they're doing a, you know, a service to folks who may not know what the quote unquote risks are. It's a hard, I, I don't totally understand it. Yeah. No. I, I certainly get the impression that for, uh, aside from the obvious grifters who have, who don't even believe fully what they're saying and they've just found it as a, a convenient way to, to fleece the gullible. My experience looking up some of these these doctors and scientists who who take these positions it's usually either they've fallen into conspiracy conspiratorial thinking as it, as you've mentioned or they've had some kind of deep profound personal experience that has led them down this road with their their child had some kind of medical problem um and they've decided to blame it on vaccines for whatever reason and once that you've got an emotional reason for having something, uh, for believing something rather than a rational reason, very, very difficult to find your way out of that because the emotions tend to be stronger than, than the reason at that point. For sure. And I think that's a, a reason we need to, as um, medical people and people of science, need to be better storytellers because that's, that's where, um, you know, the anti-vax community is really successful. They use these heart-wrenching stories that tug on your heartstrings and we all can you know sympathize with parents who've had bad things happen to their children uh, whether they were related to vaccines or not usually not but we we understand the pain that they're going through and, and we can sympathize or empathize with that but people who've had um, you know adverse or serious outcomes from vaccine I'm sorry not vaccines from vaccine preventable disease uh, are, are, are way more prevalent <laughs> than, than those that have had any serious outcomes from the vaccine. And we need to be better about telling those stories. Um, those stories are equally, if not more impactful, just the sheer volume of those stories of deaths. We need to, to make use of these stories in talking about what the more real risks are of not vaccinating. Um, and I was saying that, you know, I, it's a common question that I get is when, when, after this vaccine, when will we go back to normal? And and you know, there's 300,000 families out there in the U.S. that will never go back to normal because they lost a loved one or loved ones. Um, so storytelling is hugely important, and and we know from research that that 
facts while I think if we don't have the facts at hand to be able to address people's questions, they will doubt how much we know about the, the topic of vaccines. But the facts and the data are not what change people's minds. It's, it's the stories, it's the relationship that you have with a patient, it's the trust they have in you. Um, those are the things that are most important. How we speak to them, whether we're being respectful of their concerns, uh, that's what changes minds. And so facts are important, we need them. <laughs> we need the data, but, um, but stories are, are more powerful. Yeah, that's a, a very accurate observation, and it, it certainly uh, conforms to to my experience and the experience of, of other doctors and, and scientists that I've interviewed on this podcast. I want to finish with a final question about the issue of science being settled. Anti-vaxxers like to say that one of the reasons they refuse to accept the scientific consensus on vaccines is because science is never settled and no true scientist would ever say that science is officially settled on on any given issue what would you say to to that uh, argument how would how would you respond to that is it really true that science is never settled on on any given issue because if that was the case, it would have tremendous implications, not just for vaccine science, but for the entire breadth of science. Well, I have a hard time with that, that statement um, because I think the nature of science is that we never know everything. <laughs> you know, it's a constantly evolving field. Um, and I don't know that any scientist worth their salt would ever claim that we know everything, um, that, uh, you know, there's nothing more to learn on a topic. <laughs> I mean, I think there's some, there are some scientific truths. I mean, you know, gravity exists. Uh, you know, there's things like that, that, <laughs> that we know are, are fact. Um, but I think what people are getting at with that is that they are uncomfortable with uncertainty. And scientists are not at all uncomfortable with uncertainty. <laughs> that's what we live on and thrive on. And that's what generates new hypotheses and new studies. And we learn, we're constantly learning. But for your average person who, who doesn't have that scientific background, uncertainty can be unsettling, I think. People want to have a 100% guarantee that this is going to work 100% of the time. And I'm not going to have an adverse reaction 100% of the time. And, <laughs> and, and we just can't give that assertion. Um, we can say from studies that we know that, you know, overwhelmingly vaccines are safe and overwhelmingly uh, vaccines are effective and have saved millions of lives over the course of, you know, the years that vaccines have been available. But we do know that there are potential risks, just like there are risks with everything we do in life. Eating food, walking down the street, <laughs> breathing, uh, you know, can be risky. Um, and so, you know, it's a risk benefit analysis and the benefit way outweighs the risk in the case of vaccines. So, you know, I think people claim anti-vaxxers will claim that, that scientists say the science is settled, but that is just not true. <laughs> I think, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, I, the reason I, I raise this is because I, I tend to get very different answers from different people. I don't have a scientific or, or medical background, so I, I rely very much on, on the people who do. But I do have a debating background and a philosophy background, both of which I, I've done at, at university. So my expertise lies in definitions of concepts and the way we think and the way we create our understanding of the world and our our theory of knowledge our, our epistemology that that guides our interpretation of the world so whenever someone asks me a question that has some kind of specific term in it like settled science my first response is what do you mean by settled science mm -hmm. and that to me in my experience has been the crux of this issue because different people have different definitions of, of what they mean by it typically the layperson won't actually be able to give you any kind of sort of scientific definition of what settled science is supposed to be you mentioned scientists don't know everything and scientists very very um are very open about the fact that they don't know everything you know that's why they're scientists. Yeah, that's, that's how science works. That I think is interesting because that is where t people, I think, tend to conflate two very different ideas. A lot of people seem to think that settled science means we know everything. That has never been, to my knowledge, what settled science actually means or even implies. Settled science isn't about knowing absolutely everything. To my mind, settled science is a term which we can use in, in a general way to refer to the scientific consensus on a given issue. And that consensus is not a consensus of opinion, it is a consensus of evidence. So that when we say there is scientific consensus on vaccines, we mean all the evidence points towards the safety and efficacy of vaccines overwhelmingly it's not a case of there are more scientists who say vaccines are safe and effective that means they must be safe and effective science is not a democracy science is true no matter how few people support it and back in back in the day in in the pre-scientific era there were people coming up with scientific ideas way ahead of their time uh, like there was a a greek philosopher for example who who first came up with the the concept of atoms he speculated that the world was made up of lots and lots of tiny little things called atoms there was absolutely no way he could prove this and his definition of 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 the concept was pretty loose by modern terms but Essentially, he was right. He just had no way of, of demonstrating it. So the fact that hardly anyone else agreed with him was not, was not the point. Um, science doesn't care about what you believe. It, science cares about what can be, be proved and demonstrated. And that is where evidence comes in because science and medicine are evidence-based um, evidence fields of knowledge. So my first question to someone saying, you know, is is science settled on this or how can you say science is settled on this? My first question to them is what do you mean by settled science? And if they say, well, you know, means scientists say, we now know everything about something else. Well, then my next response is that has never been what sci any scientist would mean by settled science. 
And to the extent that scientists would use the term settled science, which I understand they're reluctant to do because scientists are very cautious people. They don't like to be pinned down on absolutes where there is a, the possibility that new information could become available. They would, would not use that term. They would rather say there is an established consensus. And then you explain what consensus means in, in the context of science. Now, that's just the way I do it, not being a scientific person. But uh, does that sound reasonable to you? Yeah, I, I think that's brilliant. <laughs> I, I like the way you put that. Uh, it made me think of how, you know, um, some of the anti-vaccine folks will, will bring up an article, a research paper or something as proof that, you know, there's there's a problem with vaccines or, you know, there's some concern with the effects of vaccines or, um, but really what we have to look at is the, the, you know, the overwhelming consensus, like you say, I mean, that's the great thing about science. We have all these theories, these postulations and, and they're only true if you can prove them over and over and over and people doing different studies with the same technique are, are finding the same results, you know, one paper does not equal an answer to the story. <laughs> we have to we have to test and test and retest and test again. And then we have confidence in, in what we're saying. And that is the, the overwhelming case of vaccine science. I mean, hundreds of years of vaccine science and, and you know, the whole autism question is an example of that. How many how many years and research projects and dollars have been spent on disproving this one theory put forth by Andrew Wakefield <laughs> over and over and over and over again. But that, the fact is that all these studies point to the same thing, which is that vaccines do not cause autism. And so we really have to look at that preponderance of evidence. Um, what does the overwhelming majority of science say? And that's where we need to put our confidence. Yeah, that's that's an excellent way to put it. And uh, another another way I I like to uh, present this when people ask me, you know, what do you mean by science, or what do you mean by scientific evidence, and that kind of thing, um, I would say true science, as as opposed to pseudoscience, true science is provable, falsifiable, testable, and reproducible. And I think if you've got all four of those, then you're doing science. If you throw out one of those, or you say one of those doesn't actually apply to what I'm doing, I can't see how it could be called science. Because as I understand it, those are pretty much the four pillars yeah. of scientific inquiry. And that is precisely why scientists keep doing study after study after study on the same thing. Because that's how the, the, the that's how the these four qualifications are met and that's how we confirm and, and demonstrate that they are met by constantly doing them maybe in a slightly different way maybe in a in a different context maybe under different parameters but always getting the same result that is how science is exactly. proved so then gretchen if people want to follow your work where can they find you online um, I am on Twitter uh, and um, haven't ventured into the world of Facebook. I have Facebook personally, <laughs> but not professionally. Um, uh, I am on Instagram and then I have a website, which is where I, I have a blog and I try to make it a, a resource for reliable, factual information, videos, research, 
um, other people's work, books, and then I, I write. I love writing. So um, that's just at www.gretchenlasallemd.com. And I'm working on a series right now about four-part series. The first was about how the immune system works and how vaccines work. Second was about how the, the COVID vaccine is, uh, or how vaccines are normally developed and then how the COVID vaccine is, is so much more rapidly coming about and the safety measures that are going into monitoring, um, make this is safe for us. The most recent one was about specifically about the Pfizer vaccine questions that I'm getting common questions. And then the next one will be sort of tying up all the loose ends, maybe a little bit about Moderna, um, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I just try to take everything that I hear in the course of my day-to-day -day clinic <laughs> and concerns that people have and, and answer it in easy to understand ways so that more than just the person sitting in front of me can benefit. Um, and so, and then my book is available through Amazon and, and um, Barnes and Noble and the publisher's <coughs> website, which is Walters Kluwer. Um, and I'm out there doing all sorts of talks and, you know, all kinds of things. So <laughs> I'm, I'm around. <laughs> That's really terrific. Thank you so much for your time, Gretchen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for asking me on your show. Thank <laughs> you.